the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's Friday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about anything going on in your life. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email your questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Uh, we get to go to church again this weekend. It's a weekend. Um, wherever you go to church, I always encourage you to go to be somebody that God can use. Uh, don't go to be blessed. Go to be a blessing to somebody else. Put a smile on Jesus' face. Face, And when you do that, you will be blessed. But that's just because God is a God who can't help but to bless. Uh, here at Calvary Chapel, I'm going to be teaching in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we are uh, in Chapter 3 uh, in the Gospel of Mark on Sunday. And tonight, uh, I'm going to be in the second half of Revelation Chapter 13. <laughs> a friend of mine says, this is the Beastie Boy chapter. Because the first beast, the Antichrist, comes up in the first part of the chapter, and the second beast, uh, the false prophet, in the in the uh, part that we're studying tonight, um, uh, it's the end times, the very end. It's uh, the mark of the beast, and so tonight we're going to cover all of that in Revelation chapter thirteen. Wherever wherever you go, when you get there, be a blessing to those around you. Well, let's get to some questions while we await um, any phone calls that might come in. The phones have been quiet this week. We'd like to change that today. Uh, Here's a question from our email inbox from Brad. Uh, Hello, Pastor Ron. Praying all is well with you and your family. Thank you, Brad, and it is well. He says, I've been studying the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. How blessed he was to be able to see a vision of our Savior. I tried to visualize seeing this, especially the seraphim placing the coal on Isaiah's lips. Isaiah was aware of his uncleanness. Does this also mean he recognized his sin? I would have been trembling in the presence of a holy Savior, yet it also described a merciful Father who showed him grace in spite of his sins. In verse 13, he talks about a tenth shall return. Was this tenth before the destruction of Jerusalem? or after. Um, Brad, great questions. It's one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. I, I, it, it's an amazing, amazing scene. And and yes, he was not only aware of his uncleanness, uh, but he was um, aware. And you know what's amazing about that to me is Isaiah, uh, along with Daniel, uh, they're probably, arguably, the two holiest men in Scripture. 
And yet in the presence of God, he was aware of his sinfulness. Now you and I look at Isaiah and think, what a holy man of God. And yet in the presence of God, we will all fall down in the fear of God, in a healthy, holy fear of God. So yes, he recognized that he was aware of his sin, his uncleanness. Uh, He confessed the uncleanness, the sin of his people Israel. He didn't say it's their fault. Uh, Look what's happened because of their sin. Um, He owned his own sin. And uh, again, when we stand in the presence of God, that's the one thing that we're going to be aware of. You know, Brad, I believed um, at the beginning of my walk with the Lord. Now, next month, it'll be 31 years. Uh, I, I thought, now, being naive and remember, I wasn't raised in church, so I knew nothing about the Lord. But I really believed that uh, I would get to a day where I would be so holy that I could just sort of walk with Jesus and wouldn't have to worry about it. And what I've learned in my 31 years walking with Jesus is that the closer I get to him, the more aware of my sinfulness I am. You know, I knew when I was a sinner and had all these things going on and my life was falling apart, I knew that the gap between me and God was um, so immense. What did Job say? If only there were a man to stand in the gap, one who could reach heaven and one who could reach down to me. Well, I didn't really believe that I would be farther from Jesus. Now, relationally, I'm not farther from Jesus. I know that. But the gap between me and him, because I know so much more about him, because I stand in awe of his holiness and his goodness, because of that, I'm aware that he is so far above me. And it makes me depend completely on him. And I think that's the idea. Now, regarding the the verse that you asked about, verse 13, um, it's pretty clear. Uh, This is a prophecy, remember. Uh, It says, And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terabith and the oak leaf stumps, when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So this has two kind of fulfillments. One, of course, he says a tenth is going to go back to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, when the captivity is over, um, uh, first of all, from Isaiah's perspective, Babylon hadn't happened yet, so um, there would be a, a remnant that was left in Jerusalem uh, who weren't taken into captivity. Um, but but they would they would return. There would be a few who would return. Now we know from Nehemiah and Ezra the number of the returnees. There was about fifty thousand who returned after the seven year captivity in Babylon. And they would go back and rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls under Nehemiah and and establish a presence again. But we also know, um, Brad, that there is a longer term fulfillment because after Jesus was here, uh, after he was born, after he walked the earth in and around Jerusalem, that small area for, for, for 33 years of his life, um, there would be another day of reckoning coming when just as Jesus prophesied um, in the Olivet Discourse that that the city would be surrounded we know historically it was 70 AD the Roman general Titus uh, completely um, destroyed, devastated the city and from that point forward Jerusalem would be empty Uh, and yet the stump wasn't cut out and so we also know that God promised dry bones coming to life again, Jeremiah said. God promised that they would return to their homeland. And we know in 1948, that's exactly what happened. So good question, Brad. Thank you very much for the question. Let's go to Reuben from Seguin on line one. Reuben, thanks for calling. I hope you're well. Uh, yeah, good afternoon. Uh, I'm a little under the weather, but praise God, I'm okay. Yeah. Uh, I have a question. Uh, the other day, I was talking to uh, a non-believer, and uh, she stumped me with the with the scripture. 
And I kind of been kicking myself ever since then because I'm like, I should have known the answer. Okay, so, or the spiritual answer or the, I don't know what to say, what kind of answer, but in Genesis 6, 6, where it says, uh, and this isn't verbatim, it says, and God's heart was broken or hardened, and, uh, and then he regretted that he made that. And her question to me was, if God is omnipotent, and if God knows everything, why did that take him by surprise? And why did he regret it if he knew everything that was going to happen? Why would he make human if he knew that was going to happen? And for the life of me, Pastor, I got stumped. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> so could you help me so I can explain to her what that means? Yeah, I can, Reuben. And um, your your voice is clear that you're not feeling well. God bless you, and we'll be praying that everything gets gets better. Um, actually, Reuben, we get a lot of questions about this, and and actually, when people are looking at the King James, it's even more striking because the the, the old King James uses the word repented, and he repented, or it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. And the idea isn't at all that God was surprised by it. God can't be surprised because he obviously, he knows everything. He lives outside of time and space, and he knows uh, everything. So uh, it wasn't that he was surprised or caught off guard in any stretch of the imagination at all. It was simply that he was sorry that man turned away from him. And I think that's something we all have to to, to bear responsibility for. Um, when he saw the reality of the wickedness, evil grieves the heart of God. So uh, this is a case of an anthropomorphism. It's just using human language to try to to try to describe um, uh, an infinite God. And he's simply saying, um, I, I looked at the way people were living, and it broke my heart. So it wasn't that I repented in the sense that we understand repentance. It was just that he was sorry that, in fact, that's the way things turned out. And um, I think God is sorry today. Again, he's not surprised at the wickedness. In fact, our New Testaments predict how things are going to be. Jesus said it would be uh, in these last days as it was in the days of Noah. So they're not caught off guard at all, Reuben. This is just one of those things where God's heart was grieved because man had broken fellowship with him. Not only that, but we know in Genesis chapter 6, God saw that every inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. And imagine, again, we're using human language to describe an infinite God, but imagine um, God creating man perfect in his image, uh, creating God for, for creating mankind for fellowship with him, and and it helps us to understand why he would be sad that man used the free will given by God in, in order to rebel against God. And that's exactly what's happening right down to the time that we live in, and it's only going to get worse. So it's not that he was surprised or caught off guard at all. God is omnipresent. He is omniscient. He knows everything um, um, he, he's, he's everywhere. So he's not caught off guard. It's just, you would think back to that moment in the garden when he declared after seeing Adam declaring that this is very good. And then the next day waking up and Adam would find Eve there. And God would say that was so perfect. And then again, to use a human expression, we think, well, what happened? How did things get so ugly so quickly? Well, that's exactly what's going on in Genesis chapter 6. Uh, there are other uh, instances, uh, God's conversations with Moses. Um, God chose uh, Israel. Moses led them out of the wilderness. And over and over and over in the wilderness, the people of Israel broke God's heart. And King James, again, uses the word repented. Um, he was sorry. He said, Moses, look, I'm sorry that I even 
chose these people. You lead them. I'm not going. And, and of course, that was just God giving Moses his heart for the people. Good question, Reuben. Hope you feel better quickly. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Phyllis. Oh, I got a phone call first. Let me go there first. Um, got Brother Paul on line two from San Antonio. Paul, you're on the air. Gloria a Dios, bienaventurado. It's a How joy to hear your voice once more. <laughs> oh, all right. So thank you very, very much. How are you doing? Well, I'm weathering, starting from everywhere, but here I am. <laughs> oh. How's Pamela doing? Is it was it was your wife Pamela's name? No, she's she's Paula. Paula, Paula. I'm sorry. Yeah. And she is be beautiful. She's that, that's all right. Well, she's beautiful. She's stunning, and she loves Jesus, and she loves me. So it's pretty good. Oh, that, that's a credit to her. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> I'm just playing. What's up? Um, I, I just asked uh, Carly to ask for prayer because I'm going through. I'm seeing a spinal specialist now, and okay. they found that I was born with an extra disc. Oh, wow. Way in the bottom in my, where the cockpit bone is, way in the bottom. Uh-huh. I got a disc there that's twice the size of the regular disc. I said, I was going to be extraterrestrial, Doc. <laughs> you see, <laughs> I'll tell you what, ask, him, back there. <laughs> yeah, ask him if they can save it. I've got a couple of people in my church who could use a, an extra disc. <laughs> he said that 20% of the people are born with one. And then I got five arthritic discs. That's why I was, I could feel crunches, crunching, crunching sound. Yeah. Not all. Well, we know you're special, so that's, you're, you're one of the 20%. <laughs> 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 but uh, I just called him to ask for, to keep me under prayer list and, uh, and, uh, just to, to say it's good to hear your voice again. I know it's been a while having called. Thank you, I dear friend. I've been going through stores, but I still lift up yeah. the praise, no matter, no matter my thank circumstances. God's always coming through. Well, thank you very, very much, and I will be praying for you. Stay in touch, okay? That you just have to go through there. You just have yep. to bite the bullet and keep the praise up. <laughs> In, in in everything, give thanks, Paul writes. He didn't say for everything, thank God. He said in everything, give thanks. And you can, um, and, and I know you well enough by now to know that you are always giving thanks to the Lord. Your joy uh, is always evident. God bless you, dear friend. We'll be praying. Keep us informed. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question that came from Phyllis. And she says, what is meant by God inspired when it comes to the Bible? You know, Phyllis, this is a hard thing to describe um, in the natural realm. This is a supernatural thing. And literally when it says uh, God breathed, the word of God is living and active. Uh, it is God breathed, Paul tells Timothy. It, it's I, The best way I can describe it is that God is pushing the pins of men by the power of his Holy Spirit. So while the human host is actually the one who is doing the writing, our book, um, 66 books, 40 different authors over about 1,500 years, and it's completely consistent, uh, it's internally um, um, without contradiction, um, and, and it's because God is the author and so that's what it means when we say God, uh, the Bible is God inspired. Um, you know, when most of, there is a little bit of evidence. Peter seems to suggest that he knows that he's reading scripture, what we would call scripture when he's talking about Paul's letters. But I think for the most part, uh, the people that picked up the pens and started writing their stories, whether it was Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or any of the, the authors in the New Testament, it seems most of them were certainly not aware they were writing the Bible. They were writing letters or correspondences between churches. And um, uh, it was actually God took over 
and our Bible from cover to cover is inspired. It is without error. It is infallible. And, and of course, that's a reference to all of the original manuscripts. And there are some copyist errors and things, but we have so much manuscript evidence of our Bible that when you put it all together, it's really simple to come to the conclusion that all of those manuscript um, um, pieces that we have, you can put them together and with absolute confidence, we can know that the Bible is written by God. And Phyllis, one other thought before I go move on is this is the, one of the questions that every Christian has to research for himself or for herself. This is one of those things where we've got to know for sure that we can trust the Bible. I've repeated this many times on the program in the past, uh, but it bears repeating again. Uh, I'm a very logical person, and I didn't understand when Christians kept saying the Bible says this, the Bible says that. I, I didn't know that I could trust the Bible. And so I had to find out for myself if the Bible was a book written by men or if it was a book written by God and that the men were the host. And uh, I devoted my life to it. And and for um, in this particular vein, it took me less than three months to be 100% convinced that this was literally the word of God, not just a book. Not a book of stories, not a book of good spiritual principles, but literally um, a, a, a letter written by God to his church. And once I came to that conclusion, and it was a lot of study, and I devoted, uh, it was more than a full-time job for me. I had to know if what I believed was real, and if the source of authority was really the Bible, I had to know it in, in the deepest part of my heart. And when I began to, to pursue that question, it got to the place where it was so obvious to me, so clear. And this was less than three months for me. And I'll never forget that moment when I was sitting in a, 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 a big, beautiful room at the Claremont School of Theology, which, by the way, is a horrible, horrible school of theology, perhaps the most liberal in our, our country. Uh, but they had a great library, and, and it was a great place to study. And I remember sitting at a table in the room all by myself. And for a moment, Phyllis, it was as though Jesus was in that room with me. And he was sitting across the table. Again, nothing weird was going on, but it was like he was sitting across the table. I had all these books stacked up on the, on the table. I'd been going through this for more than two and a half months. And it was as though he looked at me and said, are you convinced yet? And I knew, I knew. And let me say this last thing, Phyllis. From that moment forward, I've not had one moment's doubt about either my salvation or about the veracity of the Bible, the Word of God. So this is a question that everybody needs to pursue. It's, it's more important than I can communicate. And I would love, love, love for everybody to have that same experience because that was the moment when things started changing for me. It started changing to the point where all I could think about was, okay, well, I need to know what the Bible says about this. And that's what's been sort of the controlling factor in my life from that point forward. Thank you, Phyllis, for the question. Here's a question from Mitch. I think we're inside about two minutes now for the program. Mitch says, when Peter, John, and James saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration... Why didn't they die? The Bible says no one can see the glory of God and live. Um, Mitch, they didn't die because they saw Jesus. Now, they saw him in his glory, but remember, no one can approach the Father. The Bible says he lives in unapproachable light, and yet we're told to draw near to him through Jesus Christ. Every time you see anybody in Scripture, Old Testament, and, and in this case on the Mount of Transfiguration, when they saw God, and they didn't die, it's because they saw Jesus. Uh, Isaiah, John chapter 12, verse 23 says he saw Jesus in that, that famous Isaiah chapter 6 prophecy. All of the other visions of God were those people um, looking at Jesus. 
And, and Jesus has always been, remains the only way that we can approach God. It's the only way we can understand God. Jesus is the only way that we have access to God. And so they didn't die because they saw Jesus and Jesus came to give life. And it's very clear reading uh, Peter's epistles and John's epistles um, that this was um, an incident that changed their lives. It, it was so profound that John, even at the age of 95 or so, uh, was so moved by that moment on that mountain that it really sort of fueled his entire walk with Jesus. The same, of course, is true with Peter. So that's why they saw the glory of God. They saw Jesus in his fullness, but they didn't die because it was Jesus and Jesus came to bring life. Jesus is not the Father, but he came to reveal the person, the character, the nature of our holy, consuming Father. Good question, Mitch. We've got 30 minutes left in our week. We'd love your live calls, 340-9585 or toll-free, 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the program 340-9585 for your live calls and questions here is a question from regina uh i know we inherited adam's sin nature but why do we also inherit guilt for his sins. Regina, great question, but we don't inherit guilt. We did inherit, he's our federal head, um, the, the representative of mankind, but we don't inherit his guilt. We only are guilty for our own sins. And one of the things we need to remember always in, in thinking about God's justice, God's fairness, is that each person is judged or punished only for their own sins. So we don't inherit guilt for his sins because we got enough of our own to be guilty about. Now, Regina, this is important because God has provided an answer for guilt. So you said we, you're a believer. So in Adam, we all died spiritually. But in Christ, we all live. And so the sin nature, we can't do anything about sinning. I mean, we can, we can stop sinning. Uh, we, we, can, we can walk in the power of the Spirit. But we still have the sin nature. That's why Paul said, what I want to do, I can't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. But the guilt that we have earned for our sins is completely gone. Our sins are as far from us as east is from west thrown in the deepest, darkest ocean. And so, again, we're not guilty for Adam's sins at all. We're only guilty for the choices we make. Now, as a believer, Regina, remember what 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, that no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man or to woman. And God is faithful. Doesn't say Regina is faithful or Pastor Ron is faithful. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And he will always provide a way out so that you don't have to sin. Now think about that. And then the next time you're tempted, you can say no to the temptation. And Jesus taught us how. Be in the word. It is written. It is written. It is written, Jesus said three times. So I hope, hope that explains it, Regina. You're not guilty for Adam's sin, just your own. And believe me, my plate was full when I got saved. Here's a tough question from Quentin. Pastor Ron, why didn't Paul and the other apostles condemn slavery outright 
How can I defend, defend the Bible's acceptance of slavery? Well, Quentin, here's a place where you have to study to show yourself approved, a workman rightly dividing the word of God, because the Bible doesn't accept slavery at all. The Bible condemns slave traders. Uh, they're not fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. Slavery in and of itself um, was a fact of life. Now, what we have to understand about slavery is it has nothing to do with the racial slavery that we make reference to. This wasn't a black and white issue. It wasn't. Um, um, it, it was nothing more than an economic issue. And slavery, and you can't blame God for this, slavery has always been a part of the world that we live in. Powerful people, rich people, have always taken advantage of those less fortunate. Why? Because they can, because we're sinners. And Paul says to, for example, to, to uh, Onesimus uh, in his letter to Philemon, he says, you know, if you can be free, be free. But if you can't, and this was the reality of life, people would die in the ancient world for running away or for rebelling. And, and, and Paul, um, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, basically saying, look, stay where you are unless you can gain your freedom. But if you're going to stay where you are, be a, the best slave so your witness will bring God glory. And then he has harsh words for the slave owners as well. And, and their responsibility, their accountability is even greater. But please, Quentin, don't misunderstand. This has nothing to do with the talk in this nation about slavery and our, uh, our, our foundation as a nation. Um, slavery is a fact of life all over the world. In fact, it still is. There are slaves all over the world. Have nothing to do with uh, black people. Um, slavery is um, just a product of our wicked human nature wanting to take advantage of people because we can for no other reason. So you don't defend the Bible's except of slavery because the Bible condemns it. But it was also a fact of life. One final thought, Quentin. Imagine what it was like to live in, say, 60 A.D. A lot of our New Testament was written around that time. You heard about Jesus. You gave your heart to him. But your problem was that you were a slave. The book of Philemon, by the way, is a great, great source of, of, of reference for this issue. Uh, Philemon was a slave owner. Um... He got saved, became a pastor. He got saved because of Paul's ministry. Well, Onesimus, the runaway slave, also got saved in a completely different time listening to the Apostle Paul. And then Paul put them together. The Spirit of God sent Onesimus back to Philemon. And Paul sent the letter uh, to Philemon, um, sort of, if, if he owes you anything, charge it to me. Uh, he, he twists his arm. Um, if Paul would have told people, okay, now that you're saved, rebel, they would, they would have cost them their lives. And remember, we're all slaves to Christ once we get saved. And so wherever we are, then we represent him in that place. And what a wonderful place it would be to bring God glory by serving him in the difficult place. So the early world was a tough, tough place. But don't ever be misled when somebody tells you the Bible approves of slavery. It does not. Henry asks, I know we're saved by grace, but what role does works play in our salvation? Um, Henry, uh, works really don't play any work, uh, any role at all in, in our, our salvation. Um, grace is unmerited favor to the infinitely ill-deserving. And when we say that, it's a free gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in the 8th verse. We're saved by grace through faith. Even the faith to believe is not of ourselves, Paul says. It is the gift of God. 
And so we don't have to do anything except recognize our sin. That's not a work. We recognize that we're sinful. We repent of our sin. And when we turn from sin, that's a result of having met Jesus. Now, the works, Henry, come after you get saved. Um, I'll just give my salvation experience as an illustration of this. You know, I didn't really care about people. I, I, I worked all the time. I was selfish. I was self-absorbed. I was focused on only the things that were, were important for me or things that would benefit me. I didn't care at all, really, about most people. And yet I met Jesus, and suddenly I cared about people. And so I started treating them better. Now, I didn't treat them better to get saved. I treated them better because I was saved. It was because Jesus was giving me his heart for the people that he loves. That's how important it is to understand. Um, we don't get saved by going to church, but we go to church because we're saved, and church is where Jesus sends us and he meets us here. Um, our life changes. I tell our church all the time, Henry, that if you aren't markedly different after having met Jesus, then you really haven't met him because he just changes you. He changes your thoughts. He changes your desires. He, he starts to transform your heart. He places his desires in your heart. And that's not doing stuff to get saved, but that's doing stuff because we are saved. The same is true with baptism. We get a lot of questions about baptismal salvation. There are still people out there who think that in order to be saved, you must be baptized. That's simply not true. But we do get baptized once we're saved, because that's what Jesus said to do. And remember, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. And so to prove our love, there's suddenly there's this desire in our heart to be obedient. Those aren't works to get saved. Those are works that are produced because we have faith in God and are saved. So we are saved by grace, but the works are only evidence that we really met Jesus, that we're really saved. Nothing more at all. And we have to stand firm, Henry, against those uh, people that say, well, you know, uh, uh, in order to be saved, you have to combine faith and works. That's simply not true. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your calls. Well, we've still got some time this week. Brian asks, why is it that, it, that God allows believers to suffer and struggle when unbelievers don't go through many of the same struggles? Brian, it just seems like unbelievers don't go through the same struggles, but they do. Read Psalm 73. Um, perfect example of this. Uh, we look around and we're dealing with our own problems and we think, well, I'm a Christian, Lord. Why are things so hard? Uh, and then we'll look at people in the world who don't really care at all about God. And it doesn't seem to us like they're going through the same kind of struggles, but they are. Now, here's the good news, Brian. You and I, as believers, when we go through difficult times, we don't have to go through them alone. Psalm 34 says... Many are the afflictions of the righteous. In fact, in some cases, Brian, our lives get messier and more difficult because we get saved. Because then we introduce the, the, the element of spiritual warfare. Satan, who wasn't angry before because he had you, now he's angry and he wants to, to, to shipwreck your faith. And so we have all the regular struggles and trials that everybody else has, but then we add the spiritual warfare element, and sometimes it just seems like, God, why are you letting this happen? But believe me, Jesus goes through every struggle you have with you. Everyone. The unbeliever. Remember, they go through it alone. Here's another perspective check, Brian. For unbelievers, this world, the world that we all live in together, for unbelievers, this is the best it's ever going to be for them. By far, this is the best it's ever going to be for them. For you and for me, this is the worst it's ever going to be. 
because we have an eternity in heaven with Jesus. We can't even imagine what that's going to be like. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. We certainly can't understand what God has in store for those who trust him. Well, the unbeliever can't say that. So perspective check, it's it's not that unbelievers don't have problems. It may seem like that to you, but everybody's got struggles and trials. This is a tough, fallen world that we live in, and sometimes it's just really, really hard. We live with heartache, with heartbreak. We live with death all around us, uh, especially these last couple of years. Um. We see how hard things have been. There's still people going through difficult circumstances. Um, Here at our church, Brian, um, we had six people in a week last week lose members of their family, close members of their family, people they loved. And there are times it gets overwhelming, and those are the times we have to look up instead of look out. That's when only Jesus can comfort us. And if we give him the opportunity to do so, Brian, he'll be there and you'll know you're not alone. I've done a lot of funerals, both for unbelievers and believers. And honestly, Brian, I don't know how unbelievers deal with the kind of pain that I've seen them go through. You and I, Jesus is right there with us. He is a man acquainted with sorrows a man familiar with all of the problems that we endure because he was one of us and remains one of us. So I hope that makes sense to you, Brian. Anonymous says, I'm a woman who loves God's word, but am restricted from teaching or being a pastor. How can I use my gift if I can't be recognized as a pastor? Something to understand, God never restricts you from using the gifts that he's given you. And when we have been given a gift by God, and God bless you if you've been given the gift of of loving God's word and the gift of teaching God's word. Bless your heart. It is, again, this is my opinion, the greatest gift of all. Because you have such a treasure to share with people. And there is nothing that God would do to restrict your use of that gift. But because the gift comes from God, you have to use the gift on his terms. Uh, A woman cannot be a pastor. You're right. But that doesn't mean a woman can't be a Bible teacher. You know, Anonymous, we have... um, Oh, I'm going to say at least, and, and I'm sure there are more that I don't know of, but we've, we've got a half dozen women here who've been given the gift of teaching. And, and they, they do a wonderful job teaching women. Uh, some of them teach in children's ministries. I always say teachers need to teach. So you ought to be at your church involved, um, um, volunteering to serve, to teach children, to teach women, whatever it is that... that whatever opportunity is available to you, you need to be taking advantage of that. Teaching is such a wonderful gift. You don't want to miss out on it. So teach people. Start a little home fellowship with with, uh, other ladies from the church. Uh, I love it when women get together. Um, We used to have a a Tuesday morning Bible study, women's Bible study. Some women can't come at night and they're free in the day when their kids are at school. Um, and, and there's always a need for teachers. We have women's and men's Bible studies here at our church. And uh, there is a rotating roster of women that are available to teach. And they do a wonderful job. Um, the gift of teaching, uh, Anonymous, is is a gift that needs to be used in counseling. Uh, one-on-one. It's just Bible teaching one-on-one when, when we counsel. That's all it is. And so you can use your gift in so many different ways. And please ask the Lord to reveal this to your heart. But but would a God who would give you wonderful gifts, every gift given by God is a great gift, would he restrict you from being able to use the gift? Of course not. That's counterproductive to him giving you the gift in the first place. That you can't be a pastor. You can't have authority over men. 
if that's what's bothering you, then you need to just kind of sit with the Lord and work through that. He gets to make the rules. You call him Lord. You have to follow the rules. Let me also say this. We have had women in this church who are wonderfully gifted to teach but were never able to use that gift because they wouldn't humble themselves because they wanted their opinions to be known. So prove that God can trust you with the gift. Teach it for no other reason than he asked you to and because you consider it a privilege. This is a place where opinions don't matter. There's no, there's absolutely no room for pride in the life of a teacher. And I think we, we all can see those instances, whether men or women or people are teaching, and you can see them kind of performing and they're proud of what they do. Um, you know what? I, I've been teaching now for 26 and a half years. And I am the most aware person in the world that when I do well, it has nothing to do with me. At nothing at all. Tonight I'm going to be teaching Revelation chapter 13. And whatever God does through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's because he was there with me. And I was allowing him to be the one. There was no pride. Uh, I, I don't speak down to the people here at Calvary Chapel. I don't communicate in a way that would suggest that I've got everything figured out. I just teach the word and let whatever God wants to do through the Holy Spirit happen. And if somebody would come up and say after a Bible study, boy, Pastor Ron, that was a great study. I, I just, I no, it's, just, it's all the Lord. He knows it. I know it. There's no sense pretending. So be very, very careful, Anonymous. Make sure that you're not I'm choosing my words carefully here. Make sure it's not pride. You just want to be an authority. You want a platform for your opinions and your thoughts. Please make sure that that doesn't apply to you. Thank you for the question. Let's go to Cindy on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I um, I, I really enjoyed Wednesday night's study. I read ahead, and I was real curious to see how God was going to show you to incorporate that into our lives. And I, I know there's not a lot of time left. I wondered if you would go over what you talked about when Joab was hanging on to the horns of the altar, thinking that that was going to save him. Um, and and I'll put I'll put my radio off of mute and take get off the phone and. <laughs> Bye. Thank you, Cindy. Just, just out of curiosity, Cindy. Um, next, next Wednesday, I just finished that study today, and um, I, I really enjoy what's coming up next. So you can read ahead for that as well. You know, um, Joab, um, a, a fiercely at one time a fiercely loyal, faithful man, um, loyal and faithful to David, um, hedged his bets. And he conspired against David's wishes. Of course, they were God's wishes. And when he was going to die for it, uh, a man who didn't have a heart for God at all, a man who who uh, um, spent very little time in what we would call church, suddenly when he's afraid, he runs to the, the temple and uh, the horns of the altar were a place like the cities of refuge would later be. Um, the, the horns of the altar were a place where, where you couldn't die. You know, we, we, we call sanctuary sanctuary because they, they supposedly provide safety and security for people who are, are in trouble. Well, Joab, the, the man who avoided God for his whole life, suddenly when he's in trouble, he runs into the church to try to save his life. And he never got the fact that, you know what, you're, you're saved, and we'll use a New Testament concept, that you're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. If he wanted to serve God, he had every opportunity to do so. But he was only interested in saving his life. He wasn't thinking in terms of needing to be saved. 
And I think a lot of people, Cindy, go into church the same way. We consider it sort of a an eternal life insurance policy. And I'm afraid there's going to be a whole lot of people who, who find out when they stand before Jesus that that life insurance policy for eternity isn't going to be cashed. We go to church when we feel bad. We go to church when we messed up. We certainly go to church when we're afraid, don't we? I mean, when 9-11 happened, churches were absolutely packed for about a month. When COVID broke out, people couldn't wait to get back to church. Why? Because we've seen so much death, they were afraid. Things are uncertain. But that doesn't last. Well, there's a lot of Christians who run to church because they feel a sense of obligation. They run to church because they feel like, well, that's what I need to do for God and everything will be okay. Instead of coming to church to be changed. You know, if Joab, holding onto those horns, would have cried out for forgiveness, if he would have accepted responsibility for the things that he had done, there is no doubt in my mind that Solomon, functioning with the wisdom God gave him, there's no doubt in my mind that Solomon would have spared his life. We know he spared Abiathar's life. But you see, Joab didn't ask. And so that's what we talked about in um, Cindy, next Wednesday, we're going to see Solomon get a, an even greater dose of wisdom from the Lord. And it really is. Chapter 3 in second, or First Kings, rather, is a marvelous chapter. And we're going to be doing that next week. So thank you for that, Cindy. I appreciate it. Well, I hear the music going already. Uh, remember, this is a weekend. Go to church. Find somebody who looks like they're hurting and be the arms of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back on Monday on AM 630, The Word, at 4 o'clock. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.